you please to pray with me? Uh, Father, uh, we're grateful for the word of God. It's uh, one of the ways, primary way that we can guard our hearts. We fill our minds and hearts with truth. And so we pray that this would be one of those times that our hearts would be strengthened, guarded from going astray, strengthened to continue uh, to walk with you. So please bless as we read the scripture, as we think about it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Judges in chapter 21. And verse 25, just one verse. Uh, Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. I'll give you a second. Come on. All right. You there? All right. Some of you are just turning pages to see how long I'll wait, I can tell. (laughs) Forgive me. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You might remember if you were here last week that I mentioned that not very many uh, preachers, at least in my experience and what I can read, take up these last number of chapters in Judges 17 through 21. Last week we took up 17 and 18, and I mentioned one of the reasons that many don't take up these passages in chapter 19. There's a very disturbing uh, event. Many of you are familiar with that event, many uh, not, but uh, it's a very disturbing event, and so it's difficult at times to read in a setting like this um, with all kinds of ages and experiences uh, in life. So I asked the opinions of many whether I should take up these chapters, especially 1920. And 21, the responses were mixed but favorable to do so. But you may notice that in the bulletin this morning, there's no scripture reading listed. Uh, it's just blank. That's because as of Friday, when it went to print, I had none. And then yesterday morning, Karen asked me, what's wrong? And then she knew. And I had no text yet for Sunday. I was still grappling with her. I should take up these passages but I couldn't let it go. And uh, I prayed, and I trust God is leading, but I don't want to presume upon that. It could just be my bent to finish stuff. I don't know. But here we are. I want to take up these passages. What I'd like to do is summarize them for you, um, relay the guts in each chapter, draw out a few things, And then hopefully at the end, share something that might be of help in the days to come. They're dark. It's a dark time in the history of ancient Israel. A very dark time. One author has described this period as a period of depraved confusion. That the depravity is such that life is lived in such a way that it makes no sense. You read these accounts and and you scratch your head and you say, why did you do that? Why did you think that would be okay? Because it begins, chapter 19, it begins with a Levite, 
the scripture says, who has a concubine. Now, that's ridiculous. That of all people, a Levite, a priest, would have for himself a concubine, a mistress. In fact, he would be called in this account her husband, but also her master. Her husband in the sense that to him, she's at best a secondary wife, an inferior wife, a a person, a woman he's taken for his own gratification. And thus he is in that sense husband, but also master, because to him she really is an object. And, And then, ironically it says, that she was unfaithful to him. And I say ironic because just the fact that he had her as his concubine meant he was unfaithful to his wife. No mention of that. But she was unfaithful to him, which would put her in great danger culturally in that day. She could lose her life by being unfaithful to her master. So she runs away to put her in greater peril. And she runs home to Bethlehem. She's from Bethlehem, Judah. He is from Ephraim. Different tribe. So she runs home. And four months later, he goes to her father's house. And and her father's happy to see him because it looks like he's not going to press charges, if you will. And so he comes and he wants to take her back. And the father offers great hospitality to this Levite, so much so that it takes days before he can actually leave. Because he plans on leaving, but but then they eat and drink into the night, and then he can't go that day, so he has to wait another day, and so forth and so on. But the hospitality is is overwhelming. Uh, And finally, the Levite says, we're going to leave. Now, fascinatingly, in that account, and it's left out, so we don't know what really happened, It doesn't appear as if this woman has any say in it. It's just up to him and perhaps her father, whether she goes with him. We don't really know, but that would be the sense of it. So he leaves. They leave late in the day. So late in the day, they can't get very far. Uh, As far as they can get is some miles away to get to Jerusalem. But at that time, Jerusalem was not an Israelite city. So he didn't feel safe. So he went to a neighboring city that was inhabited by Israelites. And, and, and he went to the town square, which would be the common place to go. No holiday inns, right? So go to the town square to spend the night or what was quite common because hospitality was such an obligation that people would notice someone at the town square and come and get them and take them home. But no one did. But after a while, an older man who himself was from Ephraim, just living at that time in Bethlehem, or not in Bethlehem, Gideon, and so he came and he um, saw him in the town square and he says, essentially, whatever you do, don't stay here. So come home with me. Somehow you get the sense you knew this wasn't a safe place, even though Israelites lived there. So he went home. And all I can say is that the same thing happened there that happened in Sodom In Genesis chapter 19, you might remember that situation. That Lot, Abraham's nephew, uh, had visitors that he brought home. Two men who happened to be angels, and he brings them home. But the men of Sodom were so depraved that they banged on the door of Lot's house and said, send out 
these men, so that we may know them. Well, Lot, again, we just are bewildered, said, no, I can't send out these men. He knew they were angels. May have been some of it, but I can send you my daughters. Well, the men said, no, we, we want these men. And so they began to bang on the door, break it down. But as they do, since the angels are, well, angels, they cause blindness to come over the men, over the, the, the wicked men. And thus, everyone was safe. And you know the story of Lot's escape. But in this case, this is Israel. And now they've become like Sodom. And the wicked men of this city, which was of the tribe of Benjamin, bang on the door that they may know this strange man, this Levite. His host says, I'll send you my daughter and his concubine. The man sends out the concubine. The Levite sends out his concubine. She's abused all night long. In the morning, disturbing sentence, he arose, which means he must have slept. How could you? Opens the door, and his concubine is there on the stoop. And he simply says to her, come on, let's go. She can't because she's dead. He packs her on his donkey and he goes back home to Ephraim. And when he gets there, he wants to signal to all of Israel that we need to gather because there's something problem. There's a big problem with this group in the tribe of Benjamin. So he does, to make his signal, what later King Saul will do to an oxen. When King Saul wanted to notify all the other tribes of Israel that they needed to gather and deal with something, he cut up the oxen and sent parts around. And so when they got those parts, they knew we need to gather and deal with something. And this Levite did the same with this woman's body. And we're just devastated, I am, by the thought of that. In fact, even in the scripture, we have... In chapter 19 and verse 30. And uh, all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel and speak. And so there, there we have it, this confused depravity, um, if you will. See, this is what happens when, when, when people in chapter 17 and 18 make their own gods. In following our own gods, what happens? We end up destroying our own people. Uh, following our gods ultimately leads to the destruction of, of, of people, of human beings. Uh, because we degrade the image of God that's to be in us so much that the value of human life disintegrates. We see here uh, marriage being brought down. You see, God created marriage, made marriage in such a way that that we would understand uh, his love and faithfulness. 
And so he said, a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two should become one flesh. He made us male and female to image him. And then he says, male and female to come together and, 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 and be faithful to each other and to love each other. By this time, that was just gone. So there we have it. And then, of course, human life so undervalued, devalued, that she was simply an object to him. And no doubt even to her father. And even this person who offered such hospitality to them, willing to sort of send her out. So you see, when we follow after our own gods, human life is... Devalued the image of God in us is so lowered that we become destructive even of life itself. We see it. Even in our own culture, the degrading of marriage and women and the poor and the unborn. Could it ever be more apparent then that they needed a righteous king, a king to come and lead them into righteousness, to rescue them, to change them, really? Well, then all the people of Israel came together. The people from Benjamin, where this atrocity took place, didn't come, but everybody else came. All the other tribes came and they said, we need to deal with this. This wickedness. Tell us about it. So this Levite tells the story. He spins it a bit. He says, uh, these men were out to kill me. That's not exactly what they said. Could have led to his death. And then he also said, they violated my concubine, which he didn't really say, I gave her to them. But they draw the conclusion that these wicked men need to be brought to justice. We would no doubt agree and so they gather together and they, they send a delegation and they go to the men of Benjamin and they say, give us these wicked men so we can bring them to justice. And amazingly, this tribe of Benjamin, the leaders get together and say, no, we're not going to do that, but we're going to fight you. And, and you say, really? First, you realize that if you take all the other tribes and put it together and count up their warriors, they have 400,000. You take your tribe, one tribe, and count up all the warriors you have, and you have 26,000. Now, 700, in addition to that, are really good snipers. They're really good with a slingshot. But really, 26,700 against 400,000, you really want to do that? And, and, and look what these people have done. And you're going to protect them? But that's what, what happened. They suggest we'll rather go to war then bring justice on these on these few. So all these tribes that got together uh, inquired of the Lord and said, well, which one of us, which tribe should go first? Which one should lead the way? And, and so the Lord said, Judah. This is amazing, isn't it? That, that in the midst of all of this, they're still inquiring of the Lord of something. And that's the confusion of this depravity. They're religious people, but yet they don't get what seems to be the most obvious 
So they inquire of God and he says, well, send the tribe of Judah first so that Judah goes up first. And they're defeated by the people of Benjamin. They go up again and the same thing happens. So then again, they weep and they inquire of the Lord, should we even go? And the Lord says, yes, go. And they go again and they're defeated. And then finally, they, they, they ask again in their weeping and fasting, should we go? Should we go up against this, the, the tribe of Benjamin? And, 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 and Phineas, the priest, makes sacrifices on their behalf. And he says to them, yes, go. The Lord has given them into your hand. So they come up with a battle plan and they go and they, they, they win. They defeat the army of this tribe of Benjamin. But they don't stop there. They go back to the land of Benjamin and they kill everybody. They kill the women and children. Anybody that's left. 600 men escape and go into hiding. And that's it. Left from the tribe of Benjamin at this moment moment in time is 600 men. That's it. They've killed everyone else. And you want to say, was that justice? Or was that genocide? I mean, why after you won, if you will, why didn't you just get the men and bring them to justice? Why did you have to go after all the defenseless ones too and kill everyone? The text doesn't tell us. One commentator makes this observation, however. He says, when bitterness enters the heart, then all kinds of horrible things can happen. And bitterness enters the heart, he says, when we don't forgive. Tim Keller, if I may, puts it like this. He's a pastor in New York City. So this is not justice, it's genocide. Justice would at the very most demand the execution of the hooligans of Gibeah and just possibly the Benjamites who came to fight for them. What justification was there for the slaughter of the whole Benjamite society? This is the work of bitterness, which demands not one eye, but two in revenge for every eye lost. The root of bitterness always flowers into vindictiveness. On a tribal or national level, it looks like Judges chapter 20. On a personal level, it can seem less extreme. But the destructiveness is still real, though scaled down. And the only way to avoid bitterness is to practice forgiveness. Nothing else will uproot angry resentment. Is this what's going on? We don't, we don't know exactly, but something was going on. They captured them in such a way that they couldn't stop. Uh, Keller goes on to write this. How can we do this? He says, first we have to realize what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is granted before it's felt. Forgiveness is primarily a promise to not bring up the wrong with the person, to not bring it up with others, and not bring it up in your own thoughts. When we really forgive, we commit to not bringing it up with that other person, not bringing it up with others, and not even bringing it up in our own minds. 
He said it's a promise to not dwell on the hurt or nurse ill will toward the other. These are under the control of your will. You're not able to keep a thought from occurring to you, but you don't have to entertain it. I think it was uh, Martin Luther who said, you may not be able to keep a bird from flying into your hair, but you can keep it from building a nest. That's the sense of it. The thought may come, and then we have to deal with that thought, to expel the thought. And his point is, if, if we don't, if we don't come to a point of forgiveness, then bitterness enters, and then vengeance, even unbridled vengeance, can follow. How do we forgive? I mean, what's the ground of our forgiveness? Well, we know that the ground of forgiveness is having been forgiven. The reason that we forgive is because we've been forgiven. That's the nature, the heart of the gospel. We know we're sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. Uh, We know that. You know, we have no hope before him. It's only because by his initiation and his work that we're actually forgiven. And when we realize that, how can we keep forgiveness from another who's hurt us? How can we do that? You remember the parable that Jesus told. It was one of those ones that every time, at least I think of it, it, it just sort of takes my breath away. I get caught in it every time. Uh, It goes something like this, if I may even paraphrase Jesus. That there was a man who owed another man an unpayable amount. So much so that when the man said, sort of give me a couple of days and I'll pay it, it was a ridiculous statement. He knew that he couldn't in a million lifetimes pay the debt he owed. The man to whom he owed owed it forgave the debt. And at that point, you're thinking, that was gracious, generous. How could anyone do that? And then this man who had been forgiven so much went out and found somebody who owed him, not an insignificant amount, but but, but certainly nothing like he owed the other. And he wouldn't forgive. And at that point, we're all caught up in it, right? We all, we're all angry at that guy for not forgiving uh, after he had been forgiven so much. And then Jesus kind of just turns it back on us and says, Ah, yes, such will be to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. And then we got it. Once we've been forgiven, how can we withhold forgiveness? And, and the good news of that in addition to pleasing the Lord, in addition to freeing another, it frees ourselves as well from bitterness and vindictiveness and killing everybody. But that was the place in which they found themselves there. But in the confusion of this this whole event... Now what has happened is that all these other tribes of Israel realize that they've essentially extinguished the tribe of Benjamin. Because all that's left in the tribe of Benjamin is 600 men. And and there are no women, no wives. So there'll be no children. And, And then they remember something. 
They remember that when they gathered together to think about what to do with these men who had committed such a great atrocity, that they made a vow that they would give none of their women as wives to any of the men in Benjamin. And so now there are no Israelite women who can be given to these men of the tribe of Benjamin to populate that tribe again. And they realize by the very vow that they made, they're going to extinguish this tribe of Benjamin. Now, you might think that they would reconsider their vow and maybe say, well, we made it in rashness or anger and maybe we can back off. But in those days, of course, breaking, coming back from a vow was, was not something that was even thinkable. So they honored the vow and were honorable there. But now they found themselves in this place. So what would they do? And this, this goes from bad to worse. From crazy to crazier. Because what they think is this. Listen. When we were deciding to go up against the tribe of Benjamin. We made another vow. And that vow was. If, if there's anybody. Any city. That doesn't join us. Then we'll kill them. And they said. Well there was one city. That didn't join us. Uh, this particular city, um, Jabesh Gilead. So what they did was, they went and killed all the married men and their wives and took as many of the young women as were left who weren't yet married. But there were only 400 of them. And there were 600 men from Benjamin who needed wives. And so there were 200 wives short. So they made another scheme. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. They came up with another scheme. They said, listen, in Shiloh, there's a festival each year. And young women come out and dance. And so when the young women come out and dance, then the men of Benjamin that don't have any wives kidnap these young girls from Shiloh when they come out to dance. And you're saying, really? That was a better solution than just breaking your vow? But you see, that's the nature of sin. The nature of going our own way. That because we're cleaned up, respectable, wealthy, by and large, Americans... We can mask all of that. But if all that's taken back and all that's rolled away, then this is what it really looks like to go your own way. In a sense, if you're a believer in Jesus, this is what you've been saved from. And so this is really the picture. This is really what it looks like. And Perhaps one of the most, uh, one of the saddest passages is after all of that, verse 23 of chapter 21. And the people of Benjamin did so. That is, they went and got their wives by kidnapping these women and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. 
And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, and every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. Life goes on. Now you know why people don't usually preach from this passage. What do you do with this? I'm not exactly sure. But at least this, that in one sense, we see the grace of God. God had made a promise to Abraham that one from his seed, these folks, would come and bless all the families of the earth. He had to keep these folks together. God did. It's amazing, every time I read through the book of Judges, when I get to this point, I would have assumed that God would have destroyed all these people way before now, but he hasn't. And there they are. And he'll actually work in the midst of them and actually work through them. And through them will bring not just simply kings, but he'll bring the king, the very king who will rescue Jesus, the very king who, who will uh, lead his people into righteousness, that is our Lord Jesus, and the very one who has the power to actually change people's hearts and minds that they might indeed uh, follow him. But for me, it's very sobering. Every time I read this passage, it's very sobering because I see myself there. I, I see if not literally for the grace of God. That's what life really would become. That's what life really looks like. That Israel becomes Sodom. The people of God. And it takes, takes my breath away. Look at the world in which we live that does indeed degrade the image of God in us, our maleness and our femaleness. It does degrade marriage. That a man should leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. It does degrade women. Those who are poor, indeed the unborn, and we wonder, how do we get there? Well, when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So what's the word to us? I suppose we could talk for hours, but let's, let me give you this. Turn to Proverbs in chapter 4. Verse 23. If you want to write this down, stick it on your bathroom mirror for your practice of mere Christianity or on your fridge or wherever it is you put verses. This will help you. It helps me. Just this sentence. Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. You see, that's the very essence of a human being. The heart we love, what we desire how we understand our hearts. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What we say is what comes out of us. So he says, keep that, keep your heart. Jeremiah says, the danger of the heart is that it's deceitful. That is, the sinful heart deceives us. It, it says we ought to love what we ought not love. And it says we ought not to love that which we ought to love. 
says we should desire that which we ought not desire and not desire that which we should. So that's the sinful heart. That's the heart that we see played out amongst these people in Israel in, those, in that day. And so we're to, to guard it. And we guard it by first knowing its transformation by the Spirit of God. Ezekiel says this gospel that God will take out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Prophet Jeremiah says that God will write his law upon our hearts and minds so that we'll, we'll know that our inclinations will be changed. That's the transformation of the new birth. And once that's occurred, then we're to guard our hearts, to keep it, to watch over it like a watchman watches over the city, uh, to realize if there's any disturbance, then we, we're alerted to it, that we make sure we respond to it, that we, we, we deal with it, we go and get help. Uh, perhaps from others, because our hearts, even in context of church life, can stray. The author of Hebrews speaks much of this. For instance, in Hebrews in chapter 2 and verse 1, the author of Hebrews uh, uh, cautions about drifting away. Drifting away. He says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift Away from it. That's the danger. Is this drifting? The danger isn't jumping generally. We don't usually start here and end up way over here. It's it's just the drifting of it. It's like a boat that comes untied. And for a while you can't even you don't even notice that it's untied because it hasn't really moved very much. And you look at it later in the day, and you can't really tell. It's not it seemed to move very much. But then by the next day, you look for the boat, and it's not there. The old shepherds say the problem with sheep isn't that they run, it's that they nibble. And so they just go over here a little ways and nibble a bit. They seem just fine. Then they move over here, and they nibble just a little bit, and they seem just fine. Before you know it, by the end of the day, you don't know where they are. Because they just drifted, nibbled their way, lost. He says we have to be careful because we can drift. Uh, Chapter 3, the author of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another another every day, as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin lies to us. To believers, sin lies to us. It's always a lie. Jesus said, be careful of the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. The world can cause us to worry to such a degree that we'll think there's no hope. We'll rely upon ourselves, we'll forget the Lord. Riches can say to us, all that you need is this riches. And we'll be like the man that Jesus talked about who had such great abundance that he built bigger barns so that he could store all his wealth and he thought he was great and he could just eat Drink and be merry. And Jesus said, well, it probably can, but tomorrow you will die. And you've laid up riches all in the wrong place. So be careful that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 6 says, be careful about superficiality. Be careful about, about just being part of it, but not really imbibing it. Be careful about being just a, just a part of things, just living out life in context of church life and, and all the blessings that come from that. 
without really believing, without really repenting and turning to Christ and trusting him that this would be your life. Be careful, he says, of, of persecution that may come. It may come in such a way that, that will cause you to become discouraged and lose the confidence that you once had. Be careful about the weariness that comes from difficulties, Hebrews chapter 12. So how do we, how do we guard our hearts? Well, clearly we guard our hearts by the word. In chapter 2, he says, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard. Always meditate upon the word of God. Have it in your minds all the time. Read it. Think of it. Write it down. Little cards on your phone. Wherever you look at stuff, don't be embarrassed to have verses pop up. It's not a bad thing. Better than usually what pops up. Have these passages. Rehearse them in your mind. What's the last thing you say in your head before you fall asleep at night? Take a passage and put it there. Don't feel bad about falling asleep to the 23rd Psalm. (laughs) If it puts you to sleep, that's marvelous. Pay close attention. This word, as he says in chapter 4 of Hebrews, it's living and active. It's a two-edged sword. It pierces. It will help you. It will keep you. Guard your heart with the word of God. Guard Guard your heart with prayer. As he says in Hebrews in chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast to our confession. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. Don't not pray. Pray. Without ceasing in the sense that I'm always ready to pray. Always aware of the presence of God. To know that he is indeed with us. And of course, we need each other. In chapter 3, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But extort one another every day, as long as it's called today. You do know that today is today. Tomorrow will be today, tomorrow. So, today, exhort each other. Tomorrow, which will be today, tomorrow, exhort one another, if tomorrow comes. That's what we're to do, of course, to encourage one another. He says, the author of Hebrews does in chapter 10, don't, Forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You need it. You need to see each other. Many of you comment to me so often on Sundays and particularly communion Sundays when you say, it's so encouraging to see people come to the table. It's so encouraging to me to hear, this is why we do this, to hear a group of people say the Apostles' Creed. Do you know how valuable that is? To look around 
and see people you don't really know know. And yet you know, because they're saying this Apostles' Creed, you trust they believe it, that they're believers and they're walking with the Lord. And you look over week after week after week after week, year after year after year after year, and you can be a great encouragement to another person just by standing every Sunday and saying the Apostles' Creed. And you can be a great, great encouragement to your spouse or to your children. Some of us are strong, silent types. And we, we may not may not share as much as we probably should with our families about our faith. Some, some aren't as expressive as verbal. I can't tell you how many times at a funeral, a family member has come to me and said, I really didn't talk all that much with my dad about his faith, but I heard him say the Apostles' Creed. I heard him pray at meals. I saw him sing on Sundays. He listened. He took notes. All those things, indicators, yes, believer, encouragement to us. We encourage each other. When I look around and I, I know what you're going through, you, you know what various ones are going through. And, and you see and you continue to walk. They continue to walk in the faith and that's an encouragement to you. We need that. That's a means of grace to us. So don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We need it. It's a devastating passage. No two ways about it. You kind of hope that the person next to you at work doesn't say something like, hey, I've been reading the Bible. Could you explain Judges 19, 20, and 21 to me? You go, well, let's, can we start somewhere else? There's a great truth here. A great gift. This is what it looks like. When there's no one to lead righteously. When everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But here's the good news. The king has come. The righteous one has come. The rescuer has come. The one who can change us has come. Trust him. Let's pray. Father. I do pray for us that we wouldn't do what's right in our own eyes, but we would seek after you through our Lord Jesus. To know you, to come to you, to walk with you. So be with us, I pray, as a church, that we wouldn't become this confused, depraved looking community, but we would be a community of people who follow after Jesus and that because of how we live and what we profess, that people would recognize Jesus. That indeed they would see what we do and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And this I pray in Jesus' name.